Today's reading is taken from Matthew uh, chapter 13, verses 24 through 30, and then 36 through 43. This is from the New Living Translation. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where do they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do so. Let both grow together until the harvest, and then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. Then, leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then... The righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Christ Central Church. Glad to be here. Hope you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. Uh, My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central Church. And... um, I was telling somebody recently that I've been away for a little bit. Glad to be back in the pulpit with you. And what an amazing uh, joy that it is to have our elders be able to share the Word of God with us, especially in this season of transition. And I often tell newcomers in our church, talk to them. Uh, Don't only talk to a pastor. We're used to that, right? We're talking to a pastor about what the church is all about. But we realize they're paid to be there, right? They're always going to try to put their best foot forward. But if you talk to the volunteers... They're not paid to be there. They want to be here. So your experience will probably mirror more so of their experience. I always encourage them. And to hear from our elders to teach, I think it's such a joy for the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. Uh, We continue our sermon series titled Summer of Parables. Um, As Elder David explained last week, parables are one of those key ways Jesus uses to teach in the New Testament, and it's very memorable. You don't really need to explain it in terms of giving illustration to tell us because parables are illustration of themselves. And today's parable is very self-explanatory. And not only so, Jesus says, let me tell you what it is all about later as well. Parables, as we heard, are short stories using people, vocation, actions from everyday life, what they see. Jesus will point at them and says, just like that, 
is the kingdom of God. Especially in Matthew chapter 13, we call this parables kingdom parable because Jesus says, look at all these things, and this is what the kingdom of God will look like. And he uses that to give us an instruction, invites people to listen and to dwell in this teaching. So if I'm doing my job correctly today, these parables should stay and linger with you, not because of what I said, but because the word of God was designed to dwell in your heart. As you think about it, what does that mean for us? Am I looking forward to the kingdom of God that God told us about in the parables? And according to theologian D.A. Carson, Jesus tells parables because in line with the scripture, his messages blind, deafens, and hardens heart. At the same time, his messages also reveal things hidden in the scripture and makes it plain to us. Things that prophets in the Old Testament long to look for, now in the New Testament makes it clear so that you and I can listen to the word of God, understand it, and see and long for the kingdom that is to come. That's why Jesus says, let those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So our attitude must be, come Lord, I'm here. I want to hear what the creator of the universe, creator of who I am, has to teach us this morning. And that's the heart that I invite all of us to enter into as we go into this teaching of the parables by Christ. One of the most memorable college football plays of this past perhaps 20 years now is the Statue of Liberty play by Boise State Broncos. I realize it's like 2007. It seems like it happened like yesterday, but a long time ago now, right? 2007. And this was an amazing play where Boise State Broncos, the great underdog, defeated the mighty Oklahoma University Sooners. Um, I don't know if some of you went there. You probably want to blot that out of your memory if you went to Oklahoma University. But this play was designed to befuddle its opponent, had multiple pieces working together in order for it to work. Like myself, when we saw this play happening, we all thought, why? This is a broken play. They messed it up at the most important junction of the, life, uh, of the game. They messed it up. But you realize it was all by design. All by design. In fact, if you look at any single football play, each person is given a specific task for the job to be completed. The offensive lineman must move in sync but with the different blocking responsibilities. They all move in different ways, with different techniques. If you're a guard, you do this a certain way. If you're in the edge, you do a certain way. They all have different responsibilities. The wide receivers have to run certain routes, not all the same, or different routes. Running backs are running in a different direction, faking, and the quarterback with the ball in his hands, running and watching all these things unfolding at his fingertips. If you never watch football or enjoy watching any football game, which I was when I first immigrated here, I turned the TV on and realized what is happening here. Uh, it seems like a chaos, right? People are running into each other, knocking one another down, and people seem to be running all different directions. And this guy in the back just looking and looking and looking, and he decides last minute to do something with it. And you realize it's a chaos. It's a chaos. Doesn't make any sense. But somehow it does in the end. And people cheer if the correct play is made. I've learned to enjoy football because I think it resembles life in itself in many ways. Everything happening, seemingly chaotic at times, erupting all over the place, 
Not every single person's experience are similar or exactly like the other person. Based upon who you are, your responsibility, your background, your experience, everyone seems to have different experiences in this world. At the same time, we feel like we're living in a chaos with different things happening, don't we? And we describe that as life. Life at its finest. And we clearly see chaos, sometimes not the finest, also chaotic elements as well, because we see chaos happening in the world today. The stories upon stories about mass shootings that happened, not the finest moments of our nation in this path July 4th. The unrest in Europe with Russia and Ukraine. Add to that record heat waves. Add to that election season that is coming up where the nation seems to be divided, or is in fact divided in many ways. What about our homes, family conflicts, relationships that are broken? Many of us are living in the midst of chaos. We long for vacation, I realize, because we desire some semblance of sanity in the midst of the chaos that you and I are living in. We recognize that oftentimes our life is not this Instagram moment that are captures, that are doctored images. Rather, they are more realistic, authentic moments where chaos is happening. In fact, I recently joined this um, social media called Be Real. Do you guys know what that is? Like, Be Real? And I was like, what is this? Another social media on top of the thread and all that stuff is happening. But I realized, wow, there's something about this. Be Real captures the moment at its moment, and you can't really change that. And if you don't do it within those moments, then everybody else knows you're faking it, right? And I love the fact that it is so real at that moment, not this Instagram doctor moments that I posted, although I use Instagram as well, because life is like that, right? Life is be real in that moment, the chaos, not this doctored images where you change things to make it look great. And that's why I think I love what Christ is teaching here when Jesus is giving the be real moments of life here. This is a life moment, life picture that Jesus tells the disciples. It is all its glory, but also it is all of its chaos at the same time. And as I joined this Be Real community, I realized that's actually the heart of a lot of people. Originally, I joined it because I wanted to understand more of our youth that are sitting here, what they like, because it's one of the fastest growing social media platforms among youth. And I realized youth crave and desire being authentic, being real. And if you're youth sitting here, the Bible doesn't shy away from that. Do you know that? If anything is authentic and real, hang around this Jesus figure for a while, and you realize that Jesus is more real than anything else out there. And I should say, it's not just the youth, but all of us that desire those real, authentic moments you see, Christ is absolutely real and authentic than anything else you experience in your life. And today's parable shows us that and more. And what it speaks to is in the midst of all this chaos, the question that we often have, where is God in all this? Is God really in control still in the midst of the chaos that I seem to be involved in? Does God really know what is going on? And you tell me that God is so good and caring, but why does my life seem like so chaotic at times? Why do I see injustice 
happening all around, not only in the world, but in my work? And why do good people, including my family, often suffer in this world? And I'm not saying God is causing chaos and heartbreaks, but what we see today in the world that you and I live in today, we seem to be in a lot more chaos than not, aren't we? And that's why we turn to today's parable with much interest, because we really want to see this authentic Christ speaking into these moments to show us this be real moments of life. And what Jesus unfolds through this parable is that in the midst of the chaos that he is ever present. And not only in the midst of the chaos he's present, but he will walk you through that until the end because the parable does talk about the end time that is to come. And he shows us that the question, the answer to where is God is that God is right there in the midst of our chaos and also he'll be right there in the end when we see him face to face. The first thing we see that God is present in the midst of the chaos that you and I are involved in. As I talked to many of you in the lobby today, the summer is here. That means hot sun is here. Scorching heat is here. The pool time is here. Vacation is here. School is out, and many of you are out and about going to different things. But that also means your yard, the garden, is now full of weeds, right? Recently, my family, rather I should say my in-laws and my wife, um, planted various plants in this plot of land, hoping to grow things. Peppers, tomatoes, sunflowers, you name it. We want to grow it, we want to eat it. And the ground was fertile, the compost fertilizer was added, and you're wondering and thinking like, okay, things must grow here. And you know what grows the most fastest? Weeds, right? Weeds grow out of these gardens fast more than anything else. And if you have any experience gardening or growing grass or growing anything, period, you recognize that what Jesus is teaching here resonates with us deeply. After all, parables are designed to stick in your mind like this. If Jesus walked through today, you'll probably say the same thing. Look at that grass yard that you got. Don't worry. It'll be full of weeds next week, right? That's how the kingdom of God is like. That's what Jesus is saying. And he talks about this parable as a wheat and the wheat that grows together. That's why he starts talking about Matthew chapter 13. Here is another story. Jesus told. You know, Jesus speaks in stories so that it will stick to us like we talked about. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who plants good seeds in his field. But that night as the workers slept, his enemies came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow, the produce grain, the weeds also grow. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted good seeds is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds? And you're thinking, yeah. Just do it, right? But he says, no. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I'll tell the harvester to sort out the weeds, tie them into a bundle, burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. The parable begins with Jesus likening the kingdom of God to the field, which represented the world that planted with the seed. The seed is the word of God that will result in producing the wheat those who are true followers of Christ. However, at night, the enemy, the devil here, sows the seed of discord. And those seeds that turn into weeds are those who reject Christ 
and stands at odds against the kingdom and God in this world. And the parable tells us that weeds will grow side by side with the wheat. And the master advises the eager servants who want to uproot to say, hold on, wait until the harvest time. The parable tells us there will be two seeds, two fruit that will come about in this world today. So what do we see? Two things we see real quickly. Is first, the enemy is at work just as God is at work. And this explains the chaos that you and I live in. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul reminds us that our struggle is not only against what we can see, but the enemy we often do not see. It says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against the evil rulers, authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And this enemy, as we know as a devil, is actively working. Oftentimes in our quote-unquote reform circle, we don't like talking about the spiritual realm and talking about spiritual battles, but Bible does not shy away from that. It is biblical to talk about that. Devil is at work. He worked in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. He worked through the hardened hearts of the rulers such as Pharaoh and the nations that revolved. He works through Judas who makes a constant choice to abandon Christ. Though we do not entirely fault the devil for the chaos you and I experience in our world because our sin contributes to that, we must acknowledge that he is ever so actively working to drag people with him to his doom in hell. We better believe that spiritual battle rages on today. Second thing we see that is that God, in his sovereignty, allows this to happen. And that's hard teaching. That's hard to accept. I know that. But the scripture is clear. The key point is God allows this to happen, emphasizing that God is still in control despite the chaos that is happening. There's a clear difference between God being the source of evil versus God permitting the evil to happen. And this parable teaches us that God is never the source as he's the good sower, but the reason why he allows evil to happen. And that's the logical question that we ask, right? Why would God allow this to happen in this world today? And the parable tells us the sower's concern, God's concern, is that when pulling out the weed, it may also hurt the wheat as a result. And some of you may wonder, especially since our experience of pulling the weed out of grass, is that crabgrass looks definitely worse than the fescue Bermuda grass in your yard, and you could tell the difference there. But back in the Middle Eastern times, the wheat and the weed look very similar. Very similar at times. So for someone that's listening to this, they clearly get it. How can we tell apart? And as you're trying to pull out the weed, you may pull out the weed as well. And again, you may also have a question, but God is God, right? He should know. Though we may not be able to tell, he should know. So why doesn't God let that happen? Let's just get rid of all the weeds so that weed, there's plenty of harvest to go around. Here we see again the sower's heart and the character on display. Yes, absolutely, Bible tells us God is God of justice. That God must punish sin. God hates injustice that is happening. It breaks his heart. But Scripture is absolutely clear at the same time that the God, God, or God is God of compassion and love 
and patience. For some of us that are reading through the scripture, one chapter that stuck out to me that, so, that broke my heart and also realized God's heart was the story of King Ahab in the Old Testament. When he kills or his wife kills um, the vineyard owner and then gets his own. And God punishes him and says, I will punish you. But you know what happens in the very next verses? He repents. And God says, look at him. I will not Calamity, I will not let the calamity come upon him now, but his future generation. And you're thinking, why, God? Why would you let a murderer like this go away and be impressed with your repentance? You see, Scripture holds these two things in tension for us. God of justice, but God of love and patience. God who is slow to anger, abounding in grace in Exodus chapter 34. As we saw throughout the Old Testament, there's so many times Israelites should have been punished and thrown away. But God in his abundant grace and love holds them. He's patient with them and loves them. And in fact, this scripture reminds us again of his kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. So the bottom line of God's heart and God's permission for evil is not meant for those who follow Christ to suffer for the sake of suffering, not just because God doesn't want justice to be served, but here what we see is not only the judgment will come eventually, but in the meanwhile, His grace is available for those who will repent and turn to Him. And before we say, God, that's not, um, that's not fair, let's be honest. Many of our testimonies are possible because of disgrace. Almost all of us, I could say, call him Ava Father, not because you're righteous from the get-go, but because you experience grace of God like this. As you relented judgment for the time being, his grace was available so you could call him Abba Father, Savior, Redeemer, my Maker. This is also why you and I can pray in this world, in hope for our covenant children to return home, for our neighbors, for our families. And this is a hope that you and I could have as we go to our workplaces, to be a light in our workplaces as we talk about to our city. And this is why we could send our missionaries to the world as we have mission letters updated today, you could pick up with hope and pray that God will do the work. But this parable also teaches us that chaos is going to be part of the life that you and I live in. The struggle will be there. We are living in what we call already not yet. Christ came to redeem us, to buy us back, and there's grace ever present upon the cross. But we also recognize that this is not the end. Don't get too comfortable, O saints of God. Long for heaven that is to come. That's what the scripture teaches us. Furthermore, what this reminds us is that hypocrisy will be real danger, something that you and I will face. And oftentimes in these days, we see so many documentaries. I could name you all the documentaries I saw over this past three weeks about the hypocrisy of the church. And yes, those do hurt and we recognize there are hurt and pain, and the church must repent, and we must come to the Lord in humble reliance upon 
the Lord. But at the same time, Jesus warned of that already. Do you know that? Right here in these verses. He says these things will happen. In fact, it was noted that during the 2nd and 3rd century, the church, right after the uh, apostles, the critics of the church pointed out that Christianity cannot be true because of the hypocrites present in the church. They professed to believe but lived immoral lives. Do you know what the early church leaders after the disciples like Irenaeus, Tertullian, said in response to that? They said, oh, in fact, you're right. They didn't try to argue and say, well, church is great. No, they didn't say that. They said, in fact, you're right. The proof of the gospel is what you said. In fact, Jesus and Peter and Paul told us that there will be the case. There will be hypocrites. There will be false teachers even within the church. He says that's why the word of God stands is true. Indeed, because the master does not root out the weeds right away. He's waiting patiently for repentance to occur. So what's our response to that? In the midst of the chaos, those who proclaim to follow Christ, our goal is not to say, let the chaos be gone, but to see Christ, who not only calms the storms, but who is ever-present with his disciples in the midst of it. The story about Jesus coming the storm is amazing, not only because he's able to calm the storm, because you realize people need storms, right? We need rain for the crops to grow. We need those things to happen. But the amazing thing about this story, first and foremost, is that Christ is present in the storm, and he's ever so calm in the storm. Why? Because he is in control. Oh, saints of God, do you believe that? In the midst of the storms and the chaos that you are going through, in the midst of challenges, as we see our covenant children struggling, as we see our nation divided, our hearts wrestling, do you see the God of the universe standing with us in the midst of it all? That's what this parable is reminding us. He is ever-present in the midst of the chaos. But furthermore, not only he is ever-present in the midst of chaos, God promises that he will stand in his presence all the way until the end. We finally did something we thought was seemingly impossible. We finally finished Avatar, The Way of Water. <laughs> if you ever watched that movie, it's like three hours long, right? And I realized, wow, this is amazing. How can someone watch this in a movie theater for three hours? Or is it four hours long? I don't know how it was. Uh, without giving any spoilers, because now it's in streaming platform now, so I think it's fair game. And the most movies, you know, there's similar plot, right? There's a struggle, fire, war, there's blood, it's just everywhere, chaos. It gets so intense, and you're wondering, can like, the protagonist, can he make it? Can he make it? I'm watching this, and I'm like, oh, is it going to happen? And my wife simply turns into me and says, you know how it ends, right? I'm like, no, you do. Protagonists always make it happen, right? The hero always wins at the end, no matter what movie it is. I know some of you say, well, 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 but some movies, right, they die. Yes, but ultimately, if you think about it, anyway, yes, but protagonist always wins out at the end, and they always do. And as we finish this long journey of this movie, and in fact, it happens. Watch the movie, and you realize that too. And this story that Jesus teaches us tells us the same. Yes, there's a chaos, there's a struggle here, but in the end, 
In the end, guess who wins? Not we win, God wins. And as a result, we get to be part of that. And that's what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 13, 36, 43. Then leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went to house. His disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. And notice this. One thing I do want to point out, when disciples come in and say, please explain to us, Jesus doesn't say like, oh, you guys, I can't believe this. I have to speak to you in plain words. That's not what Jesus says, right? Jesus says, great. Come closer. Let me teach you. Again, inviting us, inviting us to his heart. And he says, Son of man is the farmer who plants the good seeds. And I'm not going to read the whole thing for the sake of time, but he says, At the end, the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, the weeds, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And this is what Jesus tells us that there will be a judgment in the end. We talked about the grace of God, the love of God, but God says, yes, that's who I am, but also, I am God of justice. I hate sin, and there will be judgment at the end. As the wheat and the weak grow, it may seem like the enemy is influencing, winning, but that's not what happens in the end. The enemy may at times look like he may be winning, but the kingdom is coming. Kingdom of God is coming. Jesus will return, and Jesus will be victorious in the end. In church, that means this parable gives us both a warning and hope for us today. A stern warning is given to those who do not believe and follow after Christ. And it's hard to say this, but Bible is absolutely clear, right? And in this parable, Jesus calls whoever is not in Christ the enemies who will be burned and being put into a place where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Scripture uses that to describe hell, a place where there's no fellowship of God and there's only agony and suffering. And if you're this morning and if you have not known Christ, do not know him. This is our greatest hope that we could give you. Christ tells us that that is the end. We don't just gather on Sunday morning because we feel good about gathering with people we like. We have this agenda we want to accomplish. Well, we want to teach good things to our children. We gather here because we realize our ultimate hope, not only in our children's life, but my life, in your life, is the grace of God that rescues us from damnation in hell and the hope that we find in Christ, eternal fellowship that is to come. And that's the hope that we have for those who follow Christ, that we extend to those who do not know who he is. The kingdom of God will come on earth. Chaos will end. Jesus will come. And those who are righteous, the Bible says, it's not those righteous on their own by their own might, those who are righteous because of Christ's work on the cross for them, meaning he took your sin upon his shoulders so that now you are seen as righteous before God, are saved by him. And those who are righteous by God's grace alone will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Therefore, Scripture reminds us to persevere. You see, Christians are not masochists. 
They do not simply enjoy persecution or want more difficult life. Rather, Christians are eternal hedonists. They long for the joy of kingdom that is to come. It's not just that they get to see a glimpse of heaven that is to come and float around the clouds, playing the harp, enjoying that. That's not heaven. The heaven, the joy, the lifetime of happiness is because you get to be with the one that created you. You get to be with the one who loves you deeply like anyone ever. You get to be the one that knows you and be known by that. That's what Christians long for in the eternity that is to come. That's why I believe Christians are the eternal hedonists. They long for the joy of the kingdom that is to come. But the warning is absolutely clear. This God who loves us so much, God who loves sinners, who want the sinners to repent, is also absolutely clear. If you reject his voice and harden your heart, you will end up in a place where there's gnashing of teeth and weeping for eternity that is to come. So he invites us this morning for those who follow Christ to count the cost, to remember in the chaos of our life he is ever-present. For those who are not in Christ, the invitation, come. My grace is sufficient for you. Back to the story of football. The famed Statue of Liberty play resulted in one of the biggest upsets in college football history. After a big game like this, there's confetti, there's celebration, there's trophy, and often the winner will say something like this. It's a hard game, but we persevered, we fought through it all, we listened to our coach, we trusted in his plan for us. Brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, in the midst of chaos, God is at work, is ever so present, orchestrating, moving, even in the chaos, it's real and hurts. Our minds can fully grasp, understand why all this sufferings and heartache, how does it connect? And I wish I know the answer to that. But in the midst of the chaos, what we know and what this parable reminds us, that you and I could trust in our ultimate coach, our Father who loves us. Therefore, he invites us to pray, to sing, Gather, remind one another that our God is present with us. Harvest is coming, church. Do you long for it? Let's pray. Let's pray, shall we? I know many of us are going through the valleys of shadow of death, the chaos of our life, and to explain that, impossible at times. But God reminds us that He is ever-present, that's why we have testimonies, don't we? We have stories like this too. That's why I need you to tell me your stories. That's why I need us to read, to learn together the teachings of Christ, to say with our church fathers, this must be real, because he told us this is the most authentic thing someone has ever told me. Christ is present in the chaos, and he will be present in the end. Father, that's our prayer, Lord, as we come before you. Lord, we...
Let us not try to make sense of all things on our own, but acknowledge that apart from you, the Lord, we are lost. So we thank you for the hope that we find in Christ that invites us to this table. Pray that, Lord, as we partake in this table together, we long for heaven that is to come. Proclaim Christ until he returns. Long for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.